0: Thanks for downloading this show from PC1. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale do it right for less start with Lowe's offers valid through 417 not valid on Alaska or Hawaii Bonnie offer valid on 19 ounce pots see store for details US only
1: this podcast is brought to you by Braintree if you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours think again Braintree rethink payments learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes
0: this is Forbes under 30 on podcast one
1: And I'm your host, Steve Goldblum. On the Forbes Under 30 podcast, we talk to young innovators, disruptors, and entrepreneurs. Today we have Anna Kasparian, the host and producer of The Young Turks, an online news show that is unapologetically liberal. She's an L.A.-based journalist who does not shy away from voicing her opinions, earning her a loyal following, and a spot on the Forbes 30 Under 30 media list in 2016. Anna, thanks so much for doing this. It's good to have you.
2: It's my pleasure to do it. I love it. Thank you for having me.
1: Is it true that when you were younger, you were watching Barbara Walters' 2020
2: I I was. I actually grew up watching Barbara Walters on 2020. And I didn't even really realize how much I loved what she was doing until I was old enough to kind of figure out that at some point in my life, I'm going to have to establish a career. And so I had this conversation with my mom. And I was like, I don't know what I want to do. And she was like, Well, you really love Barbara Walters, right? And I was like, Yeah, she's like, Why don't you be a journalist or work in the media? And then I was like, Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So you know, she inspired me in a lot of ways through her work on 2020.
1: Do you think that was the moment where you realized that journalism or media was for you? Or did, what What was the feedback you were getting from your teachers when you were growing up in uh, in L.A.?
2: Well, my teachers knew that I was very opinionated and outspoken. And so they never really pushed me in one direction or another. Um, The person who really made me think about what I'd want to do for a career was my mom. And so once I had finally decided that I wanted to have a career in in journalism, um, you know, I, I kind of let it be known to my educators. And I was really lucky because I had really great teachers and then later on really great professors that encouraged me and gave me, you know, the tools necessary to, you know, deal with some of the turbulent nature of working in the media.
1: And can you tell me a little bit about your background? I know you're first generation, right? You grew up in Reseda?
2: Yes, I'm uh, first generation. My parents were born in, well, my dad was born in Damascus and my mom was born in Yerevan, which is the capital of Armenia. And uh, they both came here in the 70s and later married and I was born in Los Angeles. So I was, you know, I've I've always been an Angelino. I was born and raised here, and I always thought that at some point in my life I'd probably move to New York just because it's uh, you know the top market for journalism. Right. But to be honest with you, I feel super lucky because I found my job at the Young Turks, and I've been working there, you know, for. 10 years now. I just celebrated my 10-year anniversary.
1: Congratulations. I did, and we're, we're going to get to the Young Turks, um, where you, you know, when you started there, I, I'm curious, with the household you grew up in was mm-hmm. there, because I have some friends, of first generation, and there's, it's like a pressure cooker of mm-hmm. a home life at times, and the family is, it's very different uh, from the generations that have been here before, and uh, they've, like, inherited some comfort you know Right
2: that's actually a really great point. Um it's always really interesting to me to hear such negative commentary on immigrants because I think the reality is a lot of people who come to America just like my parents risk pretty much everything and they leave everything behind in search of a better life. And so I was actually having a conversation with my husband about my dad last night because I'm, you know, currently looking to buy either a condo or a home. And my dad is a property owner. He owns apartment buildings in Hollywood. And so I'm just like, man, I grew up in America and I have all the tools necessary. Like there's no language barrier. There's no real, you know, obstacle between me and buying a home except for the cost, of course. And yeah. I don't know how my dad did it because there was a language barrier. He came here, he worked as a handyman, he worked 18 hours a day, saved up his money for a down payment and he bought these properties, which he, he now you know, relies on for his retirement. And so he really, really worked hard. And I think that that work ethic wasn't just suggested to me, it was kind of forced right. upon me. And so I just remember having these conversations with my parents when I was as young as eight And they would be very frank about what my future would be like if I didn't have, you know, a a strong work ethic. And so there was never any, you know, distinction between me and my brother. It was always very much you guys both have to be independent. You have to establish careers. You have to work hard. You have to be productive. And I actually thrive in that pressure cooker environment. So it worked out for me.
1: And your husband, correct me if I'm wrong, he's Cuban-American.
2: Yes. Yeah, you did your research, right?
1: So, so, well, well, he because I read somewhere that you said he he and i you've noticed this with with um, first generation uh, families and and the immigrant experience coming in that that you can bring with you some conservative values,
2: right? right. Like, didn't he um, come from
1: a like uh, his families are conservatives, right?
2: Well, yeah, Cubans tend to be uh, more conservative, and to be quite honest with you, depending on. Um, the diaspora, Armenians tend to be conservative as well. So uh,
1: how do they feel about you at the young Turks?
2: My parents and, you know, my family personally loves what I'm doing. And it's because they understand that the show is not like an homage to Turks or what happened during the genocide. They're really proud of it. And I think that we have, I don't think, I know that we have a really large Um, Armenian fan base that, you know, they they might not be as vocal about the fact that they love the show with the Armenian community, but they understand, like, the show is important because, first of all, it brings together an Armenian and a Turk, and we, you know, it, it leads to a really important open dialogue about issues that Armenians and Turks have, you know, historically disagreed on, and I think that you know, I've moved Jank on on issues. He's moved me on issues, and it's my parents love it. So I'm as long as they're proud of me, that's all that matters. Well,
1: you've talked about that too—that you had sort of a conservative youth. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And your politics—I'm curious how your politics have evolved since. Um, and I know you've been at the at the Young Turks since 2007. Mm-hmm. So. What what does that feel like? Because I sometimes feel like, as a, and I do reporting for PBS and stuff, and and um, I feel like sometimes when you're writing or reporting, you need to do that in order to see how you think. It's like talking. You need to talk in order to see how you feel about something. So right, how, right. how have your positions evolved in, in, in the fact that you have been talking for 10 years as part of the Young Turks?
2: Well, I think that, and I'm sure that some of the listeners might not love me saying this, but I, I really think it's true. I think that some conservative positions, certainly not all, but some conservative positions pertaining to social issues um, stem from a certain level of fear or maybe ignorance. And I'm not calling anyone stupid. I'm just saying that for me personally, the the conservative viewpoints that I had were really more about not understanding issues like marriage equality or mm-hmm. understanding the issues you know, related to the war on drugs or, um, you know, just all the prostitution, for instance, I changed my views on whether or not we should legalize and regulate prostitution. It's, it's the fear mongering that a lot of conservatives, I think, buy into. So this notion that being gay is a choice, it's not Mm -hmm. a choice. So they think you legalize same sex marriage and our kids are going to decide that they want to be gay. I mean, that is a certain level of ignorance that I think makes people want to take certain rights away from certain groups of people. So I think what happened was I just grew up, and I just educated myself on these issues and realized oh, the, the normalizing same sex marriage doesn't mean that people are going to decide to be gay. You know what I'm saying? So, but then there are other conservative issues, that, you know, rooted in religion or rooted in other uh, c- components of humanity that I completely understand. So,
1: does that personal change on your behalf, does that Mm -hmm. sort of motivate you? Because you've said one of your duties is to spread information about modern day injustices. Mm -hmm. And is that because you have evolved your positions, do you feel like on some level, you might be able to convert others to do the same?
2: I do believe that on some level, I can convert others. And I'm not really interested in converting others. I'm more interested in giving people accurate information so they can make up their minds on their own. And so there's a certain level of willful ignorance in the country and I've realized that there's really nothing you can do about that. There are certain people who will just flat out reject evidence that goes against their preconceived notions. And so that was something that I really struggled with because I used to be obsessed with trying to convince people that disagreed with me about what the facts are and what the reality is. And for people who want to reject the, the actual facts and then base their opinions on preconceived notions, there's really nothing you can do for them. Right. But we do have, um, you know, some anecdotal evidence. I mean, we haven't done a study on it or anything where previous conservatives come to us and they're like, you know, we used to listen or watch your show because we wanted to, like, get angry. But then – you made some good points, and now I've changed my position from conservative to progressive on this particular issue. <laughs> and if we even get one email or one message from one person saying that, I feel like it's worth it.
1: Well, let me ask you, I want to jump back a little bit to how you got involved in in, in journalism and media. And I, and I, you and I actually have some parallels here <laughs> because I was growing up in Canada, and when I was in high school, I had to do a 3 a.m. shift at a radio station in order to get this internship when I was 17 oh wow, in Canada. <laughs> and people thought I was crazy, but you did it and you kind of learned um, everything. And you were a PA at CBS Radio and didn't they start you at 3 a.m.?
2: They did. Uh, they started me at 3 a.m. And it was funny because I didn't really love that job. Um, you but did the morning
1: was, news drive?
2: It was the morning news drive. And I just remember really fighting to get it because <laughs> – Um, So there were two local radio stations that were CBS affiliates, uh, KNX 1070, which I had an internship with. And then CBS, uh, I'm sorry, KFWB News 980. That's the one I had an internship (laughs) with. And then KNX 1070 is where I eventually got hired out of college. And so I remember when my internship was over, I went into uh, the news director's office and I asked for a job. I was like, look, I'd really love to have a position here and they just flat out wouldn't hire and since the two stations shared an office I literally walked over to the next news director's office and said hey I've been interning at uh, News 980 I would really <laughs> love to have a job here and I'll do anything I'll mop the floors right, I just right. want to be in the newsroom and she's like okay I'll hire you it's so it such an out. affordable
1: way to do it other than journalism school though I know you do have professional training in journalism
2: right right and it's To be quite honest, I'm glad I went to journalism school. I had a really great experience there. But um, the way I ended up getting the internship, which was obviously very important in starting my career, was um, one day I was out and I saw like the marketing team for the news station, like handing out T-shirts. And I told them that I wanted to do that job. And so (laughs) I started doing that. And then one day they brought one of their reporters along with them to do like some live reporting. Yeah. And I asked her, what can I do to get in the newsroom? And she's like, you need an internship. Uh, You need an internship. But the only way you get an internship is if you take my class. And her class was at a campus that was an hour and a half away from where I lived. And it was every Wednesday or something at eight in the morning. And so I was like, fine, I'll take your class. I I didn't need it for credits or anything, but that's what essentially got me that internship.
1: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're all fans of something. Me, I'm a big hockey fan. I'm Canadian, so I just am. But with absolutely everything changing about the way we consume culture, the way fandom works is changing, too. I want to tell you about an awesome new podcast about exactly that change. It's called Fan Club by Viacom, and it's about why we love what we love. Fan Club is a short series hosted by Ross Martin, who has perhaps thought more about fandom than anyone else on Earth. Ross has dedicated his career to marketing and innovation in entertainment. Named one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business and a three-time Emmy winner to boot, Ross has continually explored fandom through his work at Viacom, home of Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, BET, and so many more iconic brands and shows that you love. On Fan Club, Ross is trying to figure at the future of how we are going to watch, listen, and consume culture. He talks to a slew of amazing, brilliant people across the pop cultural landscape, musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the years to come. Fan Club will change the way you think about the things you love. Subscribe now at com slash fan club or wherever you're listening to the show. Sounds like you got it early on that it's not like it's not about, oh, if I if I practice at home with the right. material. I mean, yes, you should study and yes, you should work. But it it really is about boots on the ground, showing up and making yourself invaluable at these places and hustling. I
2: I remember when I was in journalism school. I knew how competitive this field is, and it's especially competitive if you want to do broadcast, um, broadcasting. And so I would, I would stay up at night, you know, kind of fearing failure. And I didn't, I didn't want to do anything else. This was all I wanted to do. And I kept asking myself, what, what happens if I don't get a job? What happens if I'm not good enough? What happens if I don't get hired anywhere? And so I I realized very early on that I had to fight for it. And right. I was willing to do anything just to get my foot in the door.
1: So when you went, you're like Ira Glass, because Ira mm-hmm. Glass, before he got hired over at NPR, he was doing the marketing.
2: Oh really? Did you I know didn't that? know that. He and was I doing, love Ira Glass. He That's was awesome. doing
1: commercials. Like he was like mm-hmm. doing their branding. And then he in his spare time used that opportunity to produce wacky radio pieces that's that hilarious to, you know, i didn't know
2: that <laughs> this is
1: american life uh same with jad abenrad actually radio lab he did the same thing they were he was running around like i mean I, I think people just while no one was looking these you know geniuses were creating their own work but mm-hmm. um when you go to the young turks in mm-hmm. 2007 you're there you were temping at first right
2: Right. So I was only supposed to be there for two weeks. Uh, The producer was, and at that time, there were literally only four employees there. The producer wanted to take two weeks off to go to Germany. And so they just needed someone to fill in for him for two weeks and that's it. And so I didn't really expect to stay there long. I thought that it would just be a temporary job. To be quite honest with you, I had just applied for grad school Mm -hmm. and my experience at CBS radio was so depressing that I thought, (laughs) Maybe it would be a good idea for me to get a political science degree yeah. and maybe I can make something out of that because I loved politics. And so um, I also needed a little extra money. So I was like, all right, I'll take this temp job, which yeah. again is at like three in the morning. And I just remember going in first day and Cenk Uger, who's the CEO and main mm-hmm. host of the flagship show, he comes in and sits down and just rips the Bush administration apart. And I was so impressed by it because that was a time where everyone would just rally behind Bush and no one in the media really wanted to criticize his foreign policy, which you know now looking back was a complete and utter disaster. And so there was a certain level of respect I had for Cenk very early on and also just admiration for the fact that he had the ability to report what the issue was factually and then follow it up with analysis and commentary. Mm -hmm. And it scared me because on one hand, I was trained in journalism school to never share my opinion. But then I just saw a future in what he was doing. And so I didn't want to leave when the temp position was up.
1: That's interesting. In 07, he, he was one of the few
2: he was one of the few. I mean, this is based on my personal experience yeah. working in the news. I just didn't see it. There there would be some subtle criticism, but there certainly wasn't any criticism at CBS. And to be quite honest with you, there were some field reporters that did local news reporting, which, in my opinion, wasn't really hard-hitting. And then the hard-hitting stories were written by the news writers who never left the office. Yeah. They just rewrote what the wires <laughs> were reporting. And it, it was just – it was just depressing. I didn't want to do that. Experience.
1: Yeah, I know, I know. You do kind of when you see how it works with the wires and and people are paraphrasing wire reports from the AP,
2: mm-hmm. and then
1: and then you, as you said, I think before anchors are sort of coming in barely awake.
2: Yeah, uh, and that was the thing. I, I was like, if I stay here at this very well established news station, the the best that I could possibly do with my career is become an anchor. You know, they're the best paid. They're the most respected they're not doing anything that would fulfill me personally. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're fulfilled. Maybe they love what they do, but I wanted more.
1: I hear you. Well, I, um, I want to know what it feels like for you when you are like, you're not, you've said you're too feisty for your own good. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that?
2: I have very strong opinions and I think that sometimes, um, my opinions do get me in a little bit of trouble mm-hmm. But I can say, you know, without a doubt that I don't regret anything that I've said. Um, I think that I've grown quite a bit since I started working at the Young Turks and doing on-air commentary. I mean, I was 20 when I started. So, of course, you know, I've evolved on, you know, various positions. But every once in a while, I think that something will make me feel so frustrated or so angry and so disillusioned that I will... Speak my mind in a way that offends people, and so yeah, it gets me in trouble, but i don 't regret it because it 's who i am it's it's sincere it's authentic, and if people get turned off by that, that 's totally fine. But I think that there is a thirst out there for genuine people who share their genuine opinions.
1: I have to ask you about that because i like i i've asked questions for a living for you know i don 't know a pretty long time now. it feels like ten years or something and and uh I know how hard it is when you're on the air to like to swear or to just like it's it's not as easy as you think or to just like give an opinion a real opinion and mm-hmm. to do it and that's why like personally when politics comes on I'm not that interested in, like in talking about my personal political opinions because I feel like after 30 seconds I don't even know where I'm gonna go
2: mm-hmm. you know
1: and it's you're incredibly vulnerable and I wonder what that feels like for you as someone that has put a lot of material out there Do you Mm -hmm. ever step back and look at it and think, oh my God, some of the, I don't know that I wanted to say that.
2: You know, after the election, um, after election night, there was, there was some reflection on my commentary because I was really frustrated specifically with women who voted for Trump. Yeah. And I I was very, very very vocal about that. And I said that I don't respect them Yeah, and I called them stupid. Yes. And so as I was saying it, I didn't regret it. Um, I didn't regret it a week after I said it. And even now I don't regret what I said because again, it it wasn't, I wasn't doing something for shock value. I was saying something um, not just based on opinion either. I was saying something based on you know, evidence indicating that these are people who are literally voting against their best interests. And that was what frustrated me. But there were there was so much pushback against that, understandably so, because no one wants to be called stupid. And so I thought to myself, am I actually causing more damage right now? Am I am I pushing people away instead of trying to Mm -hmm. understand them and trying to have a conversation with them and trying to persuade them? to, to vote differently in the future and vote in their best interests. Cause this isn't just about me. This is about what someone who they're electing is going to, how someone they're electing is going to essentially destroy opportunities that they pretend like they value. Right. Right. And so then I realized, you know what? No, because on the right, you see so many talking heads who are so aggressive and so incredibly insulting and, and, A lot of times it's not even sincere or genuine. A lot of times it it is done for shock value. And so what I realized is what you saw on election night was me. And even though I'm supposed to be like this perfect robotic news reporter, I'm not. And I don't don't pretend to be. I don't even want to be. I want to be myself. And I feel like time will prove my Mm -hmm. point right. And I feel like time already is proving my point right. All of a sudden, people who like despise me on election night are coming to me and they're like, oh, yeah, I guess you had a point. And so people like me and people like uh, you know my colleagues at the Young Turks were brushed off as so-called elitists during the election because we were trying so desperately to relay important information to people who were persuaded by Trump's BS, and it was like, no, you're elitist, you're this, you're that, and it's like, okay, well, who's elitist now? Mm-hmm. Because the reality is someone like Trump isn't going to destroy my life, right? I've already graduated college. I already have my career. I'm successful. I'm I'm living a pretty good life. But I care about people who haven't had those opportunities yet. I'm worried about those opportunities being taken away from them. And I think that people are finally starting to realize that there was no hidden agenda. There was no weird, you know, corrupt influence behind the scenes affecting my commentary. It was me genuinely caring about the American people and and the opportunities that could be snatched away from them.
1: Well, you were being real. And I want to ask you about that night, uh, because Mm -hmm. when I was watching that night, what was stunning to me was seeing the silence from the reporters who were Mm -hmm. kind of just staring blankly into the camera. And maybe they were working through some issues in their head while you were working them out, you know, out loud. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I've read, you know, and and I'm curious if you ever had any interest in going into politics or something, because... Um, When Hillary Clinton called people deplorable mm-hmm. and kind of walked it back, yep. you were one of the people that said, no, 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 own that. You got yep. to go out there and own that. And I think it sounds like your, your advice to the politician is to say, like, fight like you've got nothing to lose.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Hillary Clinton symbolized – how American people are now turning their backs on politics as usual. And I don't, I'm not saying that in regard to policy ideas or policy positions, there's a certain fakeness that politicians relied on in order to move forward in their careers. And Donald Trump, even though I despise the guy and I don't agree with any Mm -hmm. of his politics represented authenticity and he represented this anti-establishment, you know, candidate, which of course, you know, he can say he's anti-establishment all he wants, but he's been exploiting the establishment his entire life. So I think when Hillary Clinton called the voters deplorable and then stepped it back, it showed a certain level of inauthenticity and in my opinion, weakness, because when she called them deplorable, that's what she meant. And everyone knew that that's what she meant. So she can say that that's not what she meant as much as she wants, but no one's going to buy it, you know, understandably so. And I think that the fakeness that Hillary Clinton represented really worked against her. And look, part of me feels bad for her because so many politicians have done it for so long. And that's what they needed to do. And so she probably asked herself, like, what the hell? I'm, I'm playing by the book. Why is it that I'm getting punished for it? But, you know, the electorate has changed quite a bit because people are frustrated. They want change. They want to see authenticity from their politicians.
1: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
0: Hey, it's John Horn here. I'm the host of the new podcast that you need to subscribe to right now. It's called Geffen Playhouse Unscripted, and every week I chat about the creative process with stars who have roots and ties to theater. Who so far would you ask? Well, let me tell you, we have Rain Wilson, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Dana Delaney, Brian Cranston, David Copperfield, Matt Walsh, and so many more yet to come. It's called Geffen Playhouse Unscripted with me, John Horn. You can download it on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe now on iTunes, or at podcast1.com. This Wednesday, we jump from Matt Walsh to Neil Patrick Harris. Don't miss it.
1: The Forbes Under 30 podcast is brought to you by a new podcast called Fan Club, presented by Viacom and hosted by Ross Martin. And it's about why we love what we love. Subscribe to Fan Club now at com slash fan club, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you currently doing a show on college campuses?
2: Um, that show actually ended. It was only, uh, supposed to run during the election.
1: Okay. Well, I'm curious cause I know one of the things you said and picking up on what you just said about the anti-establishment, um, mm-hmm. appeal of the president, the, you said he had some appeal with millennials, right? He, that, he that, did.
2: That... I mean, he specifically had based on, you know, what I experienced on college campus. Um, he certainly had appeal with young white college students, mm-hmm. males specifically, Um, But I did notice that anyone else who was flirting with the idea of voting for him was doing so as a protest against Hillary Clinton because they were so against what Hillary Clinton stood for. And so they thought that someone like Trump was not a career politician and thus could be persuaded to do the right thing. Right. Um, And they were obviously wrong, but it's okay.
1: Well, I want to ask about some of your influence. I, I think of you as a uh, you, you seem a little both John Stewart and Amy Goodman. Is that a oh, fair?
2: Wow. That is, a, is that is probably the biggest compliment anyone's given me. I don't I don't know <laughs> if I deserve that, but thank you.
1: Well, are those influences of yours?
2: Absolutely. I have a great deal of respect for Amy Goodman. She is
1: oh, The host of Democracy Now!
2: Right? Yes, absolutely. She is such an incredible journalist, so much. So much credibility, so much gravitas. Like I, I just have a lot of respect for her. Um, but at the same time, I feel like Amy Goodman, you know, is just a very straightforward, you know, somewhat dry uh, reporter. Yeah, you know? I like and, that. And so I love that, and I, I know that a lot of people love that. She has a huge audience. But I couldn't do what she does because I feel like I would struggle, you know, remaining (laughs) straight-faced and not really letting my personality come through. (laughs) So I love the Jon Stewart comparison because even though I don't think I'm nearly as funny as he is and never will be, I love the fact that you see his personality. You know, he puts a lot of – he kind of mixes the entertainment with the information. And I think that that is a valuable and very difficult thing to do in, in a correct way.
1: He would be struggling to hide it.
2: Exactly. And I suspect yeah. you
1: would be struggling to hide it as well if you exactly. were asked yeah. to hem it in. Uh, I want to ask you about a little bit about the business because when you go on, and it's like I've I picture the Young Turks as like a radio show that decided to do television.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, does that I think make that's sense? Essentially, what happened? It,
1: it kind of is, right? They were on Sirius.
2: We were on Sirius. Uh, we were on Air America, and it went bankrupt, and so at that point. I don't even remember. It was kind of all a blur, but yeah. when air America went bankrupt, we had already begun putting clips up on YouTube and it was kind of an experiment. I don't think that anyone really expected it to go anywhere, but luckily it did. You know, we learned the the proper way to tag and title the videos. There was no one else on YouTube doing news content. We were yeah. the first. And I think that that, you know, certainly worked in our favor. And so I don't, I don't even know. I wasn't there yet when they decided to you yeah, know, yeah. buy the cameras and do online video. But I'm glad that they did because I think it really worked out. I don't, I don't know where we'd be right now if we were still trying to do <laughs> well, radio and nothing more.
1: The way that I use the Young Turks, and I think everybody's kind of using each other for their own, mm-hmm. you know, whatever they need in your news diet. Um, I like the long-form interviews, and you do them well. And Thank the you. show does them well and i and i and I appreciate the time you have more time and you devote more time. Um, what is it like to go on because now that you you know you 've created the brand for yourself where a booker or a producer from c n n or m s n b c is going to say, "I want Anna to come on and talk about this," and you have ninety seconds, you have three minutes, and mm-hmm. they overproduce you to that box. So what does that transition feel like for you? when you have all this, like, you have so much space in the in the playground of the Young Turks, and then you're asked to do, like, mainstream television?
2: So I think there are many moments in my career, um, you know, in the past and certainly probably in the future, where I'm going to have to do a cost-benefit analysis and decide what makes more sense. Because there have been multiple opportunities for me to make a ton of money working for, you know, television networks. And I always say no because... I have to like weigh the money versus fulfillment, and I feel fulfilled when I'm able to do those long form mm-hmm. interviews, or when I'm able to dissect a topic without the time constraints. And with television, you just don't get that. We've already we've we've toyed with television a little bit already. Yeah. You know, uh, with MSNBC, Jenk brought me to New York uh, to do some segments with him, and. I remember was that feeling experience? so guilty because it was such an incredible opportunity, but I hated it. I hated <laughs> it. It was the worst. First of all, I mean, it was very old school and very old timey because yeah. here I am, And a there's young so woman. many people. Yeah, exactly. And the first thing they see or think when they see me is, She's a young, semi-attractive woman. So, of course, we're going to bring her on to do entertainment content. <laughs> and it would drive me crazy. Oh, so that yeah. was the first part of it that I hated. So that's
1: the first thing. They want you to talk about stuff that you really don't know or care about.
2: Exactly. So at that time, um, Charlie Sheen was a big story. And so I, we, I would do Charlie Sheen segments. And then I did a segment on Megan McCain posing nude for PETA. And I remember as I was, you know – producing and hosting these segments, I would think to myself, oh, my God, what am I doing? You hate I hate this stuff." Yeah. You know, so there was that. And then you're right. The The segments would take two and a half minutes, three minutes. And so even if I didn't really care for the topic, it was annoying to spend all that time producing and researching it. And then I wouldn't really get a chance to share my thoughts on yeah. it or share other interesting angles on it.
1: I remember going and doing some hit for a network where I was being interviewed on something and it was like four minutes and mm-hmm. then and we did it and they the, the the anchor wasn't making eye contact with me and I was like I didn't even know what I was looking at. Oh my god. And then the producer stops the show and they go, Steve, we have to do it again. Can you make it tighter? And I was like, I don't even make make it tighter <laughs> and I felt like I was an actor and then I was like, I now I have to think about what seemingly offhanded thing I just said and make it tighter. And I was like, this is horrible.
2: I know. It just seems so fake. That's the part that drives me crazy. Like what we're doing right now is a conversation. And I think that's the reason why you see people in my age group, you know, looking for this type of content where yeah. people are having a conversation. They're looking for podcasts. They're looking for content on Netflix. They're looking for, you know, this non-traditional, untraditional Uh, way of consuming news. And I totally get it. I mean, I'm in the exact same camp. If I want to get educated on a topic, I'm not going to listen to CNN or MSNBC or certainly not Mm -hmm. Fox. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look for a podcast that focuses on that topic for at least an hour because they're going to have a much more authentic uh, educational conversation about it versus what you're going to see on cable news.
1: Right. Right. And it's also like how often are you doing the show at the Young Turks?
2: Uh, Monday through Friday, so five days a week.
1: For one, hour, for how long is the show? An hour?
2: It's a two-hour show um, every day. I I'm responsible for doing at least the second hour of the show. Yeah. But Jank um, is also the CEO, so he's gone a lot of times. Right. So I will do both hours. Like I've been doing both hours uh, this week.
1: And do you, uh, in terms of the business, you guys are available? Like, do you do over the top? Are you on Hulu and Roku?
2: Right. Yes, we are.
1: Okay. So was that, when did that happen?
2: So that's the business side of things. And I, I'm not really well-equipped to answer Mm -hmm. questions regarding that, but I know that we have been on Hulu for several years now. Roku uh, followed suit. I think that we started Roku maybe two years ago. Um, But we're on so many different platforms right now. I can't even keep up.
1: Where are you seeing or feeling the most response from, from viewers?
2: Well, things are changing right now, and it's it, it's exciting and scary at the same time because YouTube has always really been our bread and butter. That's where the majority of our audience exists. Uh-huh. But lately, especially after the election, we've seen um, a lot of growth with our members. So our members are people who pay $10 a, a month to get uh, our full show anytime that they want. They don't have to watch it live. And then they also get a post-game show that's only available to members. That's where, you know, Jank and I will kind of discuss, you know, some personal stuff in our lives or uh, additional stories that maybe we didn't get a chance to talk about on the main show. And so we're seeing some growth there, but we're seeing the most growth on Facebook. Mm. Uh, Facebook video is doing really well. right. So uh, we're trying to kind of adapt to that and, and keep up with it because it's exciting but also pretty scary, you know. Um, advertisers are pulling out of YouTube because uh, they're afraid of, you know, some of the hate speech that you see right. um, on there every once in a while. And so, you know, it's, it's a little scary because we don't know – how well Facebook plans on monetizing, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, we're really focusing on where the audience is.
1: I want to quote you on something. Twitter is a cesspool of the worst people in society. Absolutely. That's you said that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You still feel that way?
2: A- absolutely. I mean, it's fa- okay. So Twitter, in I think my you have view, have like a
1: quarter million is- followers.
2: Well, not everyone on there is terrible. Like let me be <laughs> let me be clear about that. Okay, that would be hyperbole. I, I don't actually mean that everyone on there is terrible. I'm I'm still on there and I'm still tweeting every once in a while. But um, I think that what I, I think what most people see, the most visible part of Twitter, includes either the trolls, which is you yeah. know a huge part of that site, or you know really smart, interesting people who just use Twitter to be snarky and unbearable. So it's, that's, that's my view of Twitter. I never check my mentions anymore and I feel kind of bad because I know there are great people who want to reach out to me and share some ideas, but
1: you can't, I can't can't take care of
2: my mental well-being. Yeah.
1: Well, I want to ask you about putting yourself out there because Mm -hmm. it, you know, in in looking, you know, in in reading about you, there is information about like your personal life. The fact Mm -hmm. that I knew you were married or when you weren't married and stuff like that, were you... What does that feel like to have to become kind of a public figure and and have people aware of things in your life and see you and have a certain comfort level with you and and both you know I imagine some of it is is really rewarding but also when we talk about the trolls like that, mm-hmm. that must be terrifying
2: Yeah it is terrifying uh last year was really difficult because on two separate occasions, I was confronted by trolls in person. And so, you know, dealing with that was was scary, yeah. especially because it was like in an, a very aggressive way and a threatening way. And mm-hmm. so last year, I kind of realized that we have a lot of the downsides that come along with being public figures with very few of the upsides. So fame and fortune, I think, is something that a lot of people like value and they, they want in their lives. Yeah. And I've realized that fame is actually pretty terrible and I have that with none of the fortune. Like we're still, right. you know, compared to other news personalities, we're not making a lot of money. Right. And so that's a decision that I made because I love what I do and it's fine, but we're still a, you know, a huge news show that has a lot of viewers uh, some of whom might despise us and might want to harm us. And so if you don't have the money for security and mm-hmm. and you know, the, you know the the resources to kind of protect yourself from crazy people well it kind of sucks because you're just dealing with all the downsides and you don't have the upsides so what i've realized is that i just i need to be a little more careful about opening up about you know people in my personal life
1: right right
2: it, yeah it's one thing to talk about myself but it's another thing to talk about people that i love i don't want to put anyone else in any type of danger. So I've kind of reeled it in a little bit or taking it back a little bit.
1: Right. And I I always like that line. I can't remember who said it, but they said people who want to be rich and famous, they said, just try being rich first. See if that doesn't cover it.
2: Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's exactly right.
1: um, In terms of though the, the resources Um, do you feel that in the reporting you're doing, how how are the Young Turks uh, supported in terms of having enough resources to go out and cover stories effectively? And that's something you hear a lot about in news.
2: When you say resources, you mean like where does the revenue come from?
1: Um, Well, we can talk about that too. But I was thinking in terms of having, being able to go out and send you to the RNC where I knew you Mm -hmm. went um, and just have you like out in the field uh, right. More and more reporters are saying they, they just don't have that ability. And it does. You do see that in the reporting.
2: Absolutely. So we were we were lucky to go to the conventions, even though, you know, it was terrible. And I while we were there, I hated it and I couldn't wait to go back home. I, I was very happy afterwards to to be able to say that I was there and that I experienced it because yeah. I think that it provided something important to our audience. And that's honestly what we care about the most. Um, And so, yeah, we'll we'll have the resources for that. I mean, let me be clear. When we were at the DNC, we stayed at a Howard Johnson's, which was literally one of the most disgusting places I've ever (laughs) stayed in my life. I couldn't believe how dirty that hotel was. I mean, there were stains all over the sheets. Oh, that's what you want to see. the, The tub was originally white but it was just completely (laughs) gray at the bottom i was really disgusted by it and one time when i was traveling for work i went to new york and bed bugs decided to hop onto my luggage and follow me back home
1: oh that's lovely
2: yeah and so all of a sudden i discover that my bed at home has bed bugs and i panicked and when we were at the howard johnson's I was so worried that I was going to get bed bugs again. It was just like one of the worst things. So when we travel, it's definitely on a budget. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but you know, whatever. We're lucky enough to go and do coverage, and that's all that really matters. Right. Yeah.
1: And then in terms of the revenue stream, mm-hmm. what is the what is the model uh, for for the Young Turks currently? You were talking a little bit about subscriptions.
2: Right. So we have um, our members who honestly help us the most. Uh, It keeps our show independent, allows us to keep doing what we're doing. Um, We do have sponsors here and there, although, um, you know, we're very, very outspoken against corporate media and uh, the corruption that you see in corporate media. So I think that some advertisers are a little shy uh, in approaching us because they know that we're, first of all, not going to let certain advertisers do business with us, you know, oil companies and things like that. And also they know that they'll never have any type of editorial control. So advertising is a part of it, but it's a much smaller component. And then there's also um, obviously revenue from YouTube. We've had like some uh, media partnerships. Revenue comes in from that as well. But everything that we do is as ethical as possible because, you know, we obviously have a very strong political message in our programming and we want to make sure that, you know, we don't do business in any type of hypocritical way.
1: Do you know where you want, um, or Jenk wants to take the company? Do you know, like, uh, you thinking? You you mentioned Facebook and tying in a little more seamlessly with that community. Can you see where this is going to go in the next ten years?
2: Well, there are now different arms of the Young Turks that you know. I'm more heavily focused on the news part of the company. There's also, you know, a political arm called Justice Democrats, which is entirely separate from our news show. Right. Um, And then there's Wolfpack, which is a political action committee that aims to take money out of politics. So um, there's a lot going on. And I don't know exactly how things are going to work out for like the more advocacy component of Mm -hmm. the company. But in terms of news, I know that we are. We are likely going to adapt with a changing digital market because you know YouTube I think has done a lot of great work but I think that unfortunately they might be falling behind a little bit. I think Facebook is emerging as the next, you know, top source for digital news content and and hopefully, you know, they learn how right. to monetize it appropriately. And so I think we're just going to adapt to different platforms and and grow uh, along with that.
1: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Are you aware of the phenomenon of social spending? Using a service like Venmo, people can, for example, split the cost of a night out or send a birthday gift or just connect with friends through a shared economy. It's a new way of looking at spending. Currently in limited release, with just a couple lines of code, Braintree lets your business accept Venmo. It's another example of the opportunities that open up when you rethink payments. Braintree. Rethink payments. Find out more at BraintreePayments.com slash Forbes. Working for a liberal outlet uh, mm-hmm. like the Young Turks, what do you, how do you respond to people who say, you know, the, the media bubble is becoming, we're becoming so fragmented. We're not even talking to each other. Do you, do you ever worry about that?
2: Well, yeah, I do worry about that, not necessarily with the young Turks, because even within our company, we have you know gradations of liberal opinion, right? So mm-hmm. there were a lot of disagreements during the election. Yeah. I mean I once I knew who the front runners were, I was like, "We got to vote for Hillary. There were liberals, you know liberal hosts within our company that were like, "Hell, no, I'm never Hillary, never this, never that yeah. and and so there's disagreement there, and I love that because I think that it's ridiculous to pretend as if liberals are monolithic or conservatives are monolithic. People have varying opinions even within a political ideology. So what I do worry about, though, is – and I'm going to give you an example of someone that I'm not really fond of, but I think she symbolizes Mm -hmm. something that's really wrong in media. So Tommy Lauren goes on The View and says – I'm pro-choice because being pro-choice is consistent with my views on small government. And then she gets fired from the blaze for making sense once in her life. And I think that that's terrible because even if I don't agree with her on the vast majority of things, I think it's important for us to not be so tribalistic in our political ideology. We need to evolve. And the only way you can do that is by listening to different perspectives and if you can't even do that within your own political party, there's something wrong.
1: Well said, and um, Anna, I'm curious. This this question, I, I, I want to know about you. Is there anything that you'd like to be doing that you're not doing now? When you look about your when you look at your career, think yeah. about your future.
2: I want to be like I, I look at John Oliver. And I, ha- I mean, I love John Oliver so much. I fangirl every time I watch his show. I, I call my colleagues. John Idarola is one of my uh, very close colleagues. I'll call him after the show or text him after the show. I'm like, did you see John Oliver? Isn't yeah. he amazing? So I'm-, I'm a huge fan of his. And I wouldn't say that I want to do exactly what he's doing, but I want my reporting to be as well-researched and funny is his, you know, if, if I could pick one person, I would model myself after John Oliver. Um, so what, what I'm, what I am doing right now is um, something called Facebook originals on the Young Turks Facebook page. And uh, I never usually read from prompters. Everything that we do is off the cuff and mm-hmm. very free flowing, but I decided to once a week do, you know, a long form video where I p- pick a topic. I write a script. I try to make it funny. It's well-researched. And I try to do something similar to what John Oliver does. And so I want to do more of that content. You know, it's still authentic, but it's more produced. And, um, yeah, I want to do more of that. And to be quite honest, I love teaching. So I do see myself focusing a lot more on teaching journalism at universities.
1: And you're teaching currently at your alma mater. Is that correct? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, um, I didn't teach last year because of the election. It was kind of overwhelming, but I just applied to uh, teach in the fall. So hopefully, you know, there's a position for me and I'd love to go back and teach again.
1: Anna, you are outspoken, and I'm curious if you keep company with people who are outspoken and how people respond to you in your real life. What Who who are the people in your life and, and how do they take to your opinions?
2: You know, grow, grow, <laughs> that's a really good question. Like, you know, growing up, I had I had a lot of problems because— there were certain people that didn't like me and I didn't understand why. Um, And I didn't, I never did anything to them. I was never rude to them. I was never opinionated with them, but I've always had a very strong personality. And I think that some people get turned off by it. And I think that it, it, it intimidates certain sensitive people, which is fine. And so when I grew up, I realized why some people kind of shy away from me. But you know, if I look at my circle of friends and the people that I surround myself with, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that a lot of my friends are opinionated, but I would say that they're strong. And so they're the type of people that might not like to voice their opinions, but they can totally handle hearing strong opinions and just kind of deciding for themselves whether or not they agree with it. Um, they'll engage with me every once in a while in a political debate, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that people around me are as loud mouthy as, (laughs) as I
1: am. Well, you, um, you know, you've talked a lot about your personal life, and I and so I do know your position on uh, w- when you were dating. Mm-hmm. You, you used to say you just didn't like when people played games. You were like upfront, "What's going on?" Open, yeah. commu- you know, really like communicating. You, you believed in just commu- saying how you feel, yep. uh, and you had no time for games. Do you still feel like you, you, in, does that translate into your personal life with friends? Like you, you really don't keep company with people who play games.
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean. I think that free time is such a precious and limited resource, and I wouldn't waste any of that free time (laughs) with someone who's not being sincere with me. I I hate insincerity. Like, even if you despise me, if you're honest about that, I have a lot more respect than someone who's playing games with me. You know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, I'm very straightforward. I remember when I was single, there was this one guy that I went out on a date with, um, and he was this tennis player who was, like, super hot. I was very attracted to him. We went out on one date and he was really, really smart too. Like he was just the perfect guy for me. I thought that we would really have great chemistry and yeah. we'd have a good relationship, but he wanted to play the game. So he wouldn't call. He would like text me and ask me if I'd be free that night. And then I'd say, yes, same let's, day, let's same
1: day texting.
2: Yeah, same – You nice. can't I would, make a same-day appointment. I don't waste time. Yeah, like, yeah,
1: that's not right. Yeah. I'm
2: not going to wait until like the next day or two days later to text you back. But anyway, he would play that game. And so finally one day he had texted me and asked like if I was free that night and I just told him what's what. I'm like, yeah, you know, not interested anymore. Like I don't know what your issue is but you're very unresponsive and I just – I want someone who's real. That's so funny. and he yeah. was very taken aback. I think he thought that his game was like keeping me interested and luring me in, but it's just not my thing.
1: Something to be learned here. I have a girlfriend and I, I in order to, to win her over, she's very, very tough, by the way. First uh-huh. first generation Russian and very tough. And I had to I would call her on the way home from the date to make the next plan.
2: I love that. I mean,
1: you know, I I was like, so yeah, to the point where I was just like, I had to, there was so much anxiety in the beginning, because you really don't know when you're going to see each other again.
2: Yeah, true. And so my, my husband, actually, when we first started seeing each other, you know, it was supposed to be fun. And I, we had an understanding, I did not really think that it was gonna turn into anything serious. And um, he would, he would text me. All the time and he was like yeah I don't want a girlfriend and I was like yeah I don't want a boyfriend I'm just having fun but we were constantly communicating constantly talking there were no games yeah and so I think that that's what kind of brought me in because I love the open communication and even now I I would say the strongest part of our relationship is the fact that we openly communicate with each other so that's really important to me
1: where did you guys meet
2: we met at a club believe it or not right I, uh, I had recently ended a relationship. I was kind of like depressed. One of my friends wanted to take me out that night and I was like, I don't want to go out. I'm not going to you know, have a good time. And uh, we showed up to the club pretty early. No one else was really there yeah. and he was working there. So I caught him checking me out and we ex- exchanged info and I thought, all right, well, this will be a fun way of getting my mind off things.
0: Right, right. And we
2: just really had great chemistry and it you know, developed into something more. Well, that's
1: wonderful. That's great. You Thank met you. Him in real
2: life. Yes, absolutely.
1: It can happen. Anna, let me ask you. And I've seen some of these on YouTube, mm-hmm. and they're very intense. How do you deal with uh, w- w- when you are confronted uh, by a troll in real life?
2: Um, well, uh, if if the troll that you're referring to is uh, a conspiracy theorist, I think about the uh, who's yeah. also a big fan of Trumps, I yeah. mean, I. Here's the thing, if you come at me aggressively or if you threaten anyone that I care about, I'm gonna fight back. Yeah, and I'll do it by any means necessary. Most trolls I ignore, I don't even read their comments, I'll block them and all that. But if it's in person, if you're threatening me in any way, shape or form, or if you're threatening anyone I care about, I'm gonna respond and I'm gonna respond aggressively. And so um, I don't know. I think that I you know, when I say that I'm too feisty for my own good, there's, there's this fighter in me that I think I inherited from my mom. And I just feel like I will always protect myself and protect those I love by any means necessary. And I will say what I need to say, do what I need to do. And it is what it is. So don't come at me because I'll come at you.
1: That's such a great ending. I have to ask. We'll probably end with that, with the power of editing, because uh, it's such a great, great send off. But I have to ask you because I am curious. When I see videos of you, when you're yelling a- a- and you're swearing, and it, like in that moment, I'm curious. Are you scared in that moment, or in that moment, are you just kind of like, I'm in it. I'm fight. I am a fight. This is who I am, and it's like a blackout experience. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Uh, sometimes. I, I- I get very passionate and nothing feels better than when something really strikes a nerve and I'm speaking my mind and I, and I know I'm right, especially like when I have the facts and it's just, it's, it's a very liberating, empowering feeling, you know, whenever I have those moments, those rants, they're never, you know, done to like get attention. They're done because that's how I feel and expressing myself that way. It's like, how can I say it? It's almost like taking MDMA, right? It's like <laughs> it's like taking MDMA and being at like the best rave in the world. Like you feel this euphoria take over your body. Yeah. And that's the way I feel when I get passionate about a topic and I'm speaking my mind. Like I have to do it. I can't hold back. And I remember early on in my career, you know, there was a lot of pushback against the idea of a of a young woman speaking her mind that way because Women are supposed to be agreeable. They're supposed to smile. They're supposed to be happy all the time. But that's not my personality. And so I can't hold it back. Like being that way makes me feel good.
1: If Fox News came to you tomorrow and said, listen, we have a new slot and we want you to be the liberal voice and we're going to pair you up with the concern. We're going to do a little kabuki theater about it. But you basically you can do your thing to the Fox News audience. What would you say?
2: No chance. I have no interest in Fox. They can offer me a $100 million contract. I wouldn't do it. I just don't care. Mm -hmm. Fox News represents everything that I despise. And I wouldn't even believe them if they told me that that I could do what I wanted to do. Wouldn't believe them for a second. That work environment is so incredibly toxic. And what that network represents is so incredibly detrimental that I, I wouldn't want to be associated with it. I don't care what they would promise me or what they would offer.
1: There you go. Not even a little on the fence.
2: <laughs> no, not at all.
1: I will say I do watch Fox uh, because I'm curious. I will watch it to know what people are hearing.
2: Of the, course. I mean, might I do the seeing. same. I wouldn't yeah. say that I watch Fox. It's fascinating. Fox. Um, but I, I love satellite radio, and you can get all the cable news yeah. um, on satellite. So usually during my commute, I'm listening to one of the cable news uh, outlets. It is eye-opening. It's telling. It's, yeah, definitely.
1: Well, listen, Anna, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. For
1: taking the time. It was fun to learn more about you. And um, I'll be be keeping up with you. So thanks so much.
2: Thank you. It was my pleasure.
1: That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under 30. That's the number 30 at podcast1.com.
0: Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. One million. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. So figure out what your next read is going to be. Download Fully Booked right now on the Podcast One app at Apple Podcasts or at PodcastOne.com. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie, offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is... Tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come
1: down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the
0: photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.